All right, well, let me begin with a question, all right? Let me ask you, have you ever been in a meeting and at some point during the meeting, somebody did something that sent the meeting into conflict? Have you ever been in a place like that? And, and maybe there was nothing on the agenda that was planned that was going to be like the lightning bolt issue, but it just came up. Maybe just out of the blue, or maybe somebody just came in, they had their own issue, they just brought it, they said, hey, before we go, we need to talk about this. And all of the sudden, you knew the lightning bolt had struck, the gloves were off, and now this meeting was in the mode of conflict management. Have you ever been in a meeting like that? Have you ever been the instigator yourself? I worked for this guy in college at this landscaping company. I'll never forget working there. I've tried to forget it, but I never have. Um, but... Whenever this guy would come into the room, whether it was the retail space or the shop, he would create conflict. And so I noticed after a while that the other employees there, that when he would come into the room, people would just kind of do this. They would turn to the wall and try to fix something or whatever, or they would, they would leave the retail space and go outside and work on the plants outside. They wanted to avoid this guy because it was very uncomfortable and it was very intense. And every time he came around, conflict ensued, right? Not good. In Acts chapter 15 this morning, we're going to see the first recorded church business meeting. And at this meeting, it wasn't on the agenda, but at this meeting, conflict happened. And it was a big deal because this conflict needed to happen. Why? Because there was a threat. There was a threat not to something peripheral, but to the very core message of who Jesus Christ is. It was a big deal. And so there was a conflict that happened. Now, oftentimes in college when this guy would walk in and he would want to create conflict, again, people would just kind of skirt the issue because they had no bone in the fight. They didn't really care. They were just kind of there and it wasn't a big deal and I'll just serve my time. But when this happened in Acts chapter 15, it was the kind of conflict that the apostles and the disciples, they looked at each other and they said this, we will die on this hill. This is a conflict that we are going to, we have a huge bone in this fight. We're going to get in the fight. This is a hill we'll die on. So that's where we're headed this morning. We're going to talk about what was the big hubbub, what was the big conflict, and why is it so important even to us here today. But first, if you're newer to this series, maybe you're newer to church, I want to catch you up to speed. What's going on? A quick summary in the book of Acts. The book of Acts, know this, the book of Acts is the story of this ordinary group of people, this ordinary group of people that have been captivated by Jesus Christ. So in Acts chapter 1, we saw that Jesus appears after, his, after he's gone to the cross, he's been resurrected, and then he appears to his disciples. And so he, the disciples, they're seeing him post-resurrection. And so beyond a shadow of a doubt, they believe, wow, you, you are who you said you are. There's no doubt about it. And so in the midst of their belief and in the midst of them listening to Jesus, Jesus gives them a charge and Jesus says, hey, you're not just going to take this message that totally transformed your life, but you're going to not keep this to yourself. You're going to take this message to the ends of the earth. And so the book of Acts is this beautiful story about how these ordinary people with no money and no power, but yet they've seen Jesus alive. And since they've seen Jesus alive, it motivates them. Since they've seen Jesus alive, it gets them through trials that they experience. Since they've seen Jesus alive, it takes them to a place where they say, you know what, we would even give our lives for the things of God. And so Jesus says to them, you go, you take the gospel. And then Luke, what does he do? Luke writes this account of the early church and how the gospel began to spread. 
And as we read the book of Acts, we learn, okay, what can we learn from the church? Oh, we learn that. What can we learn from the church? We learn this lesson and that lesson. Now, let me tell you on the front end, when we get to Acts chapter 15, if the church leaders had not dealt with this conflict, it's likely you and I would not be here today in this room. If they had not dealt with the conflict, the threat that came their way in Acts chapter 15, it very likely would have completely derailed the church and everything that the church stood for. It was so foundational. Maybe you've had this experience before, even in, in your own life. You, you would say that, you know, you maybe had a, a house that was, you would say, it was a nice house, it was a beautiful house, or maybe you're living in it right now. But you know this, it doesn't matter how nice the house is on the outside or how beautiful the, the walls are on the inside. Maybe some of you have lived this nightmare. If you have a crack in your foundation, that is a house that you want to sell. Unfortunately, you have to disclose that information, right? But if, if you have a foundational crack in a house, it doesn't matter how beautiful it is. It doesn't matter how much you like the rooms. That house is a mess. This was a foundational issue. The same is true for us as a church. We could have the best children's ministry. We could have the best youth programs. We could have the best outreach into the city. We could minister to all sorts of kids in the foster care system. We could send a lot of money overseas. We could help a whole lot of people. But if our foundation, the core message of Jesus Christ, if that gets confused or really difficult to understand for people who come to this place, we are in big trouble. And that's what was at stake in Acts 15. And so in Acts 15, we get this reminder. And there's just a simple statement that I want to just take you back to this morning. Here it is. It's very simple. Don't make it difficult. In Acts 15, we're going to be challenged. Don't make the gospel difficult. Don't make the foundation difficult. The foundation's got to be, it's got to be great. It's got to be clear. It's got to be, you know, a person's got to be able to understand the gospel so incredibly clearly. So don't make it difficult. There's one key question that we're going to see come out of this text. It's this. Is there anything, here it is, this is so important. Is there anything beyond faith in Jesus and the grace of God that leads a person into having a relationship with Jesus Christ? Is there anything beyond that? Is there anything beyond faith in Jesus Christ and the grace of God that allows a person to have right standing with God? Is there anything beyond that that makes a person a Christian? It's a key question, a core foundational question. So this is the scene. This is what's happening in Acts chapter 15 before this conflict ensues. You've got most first century Christians, they were Jewish, meaning this. They were raised in the ways of Judaism. They knew the rules. They knew the laws. They knew when to stand up. They knew when to sit down. They knew what to eat. They knew how to rest. They knew what to do on the Sabbath. All of these things and you can think of it in two categories this morning. There was the moral code, and then there was the ceremonial laws. And so the moral code, you can think of it like this. You can think Ten Commandments there. But then there was also all of these ceremonial laws that these first century Jews would have lived by. These first century Christians would have lived by. Physical circumcision was one. There were rigid purity laws. There were laws about, okay, how do you wash before you eat? How do you wash before you worship? Uh, what do you eat? What food is clean? What food is unclean? You didn't just order your steak medium rare with some extra bacon bits on your salad. I mean, that just didn't happen. It was not acceptable. There was rules around all of that kind of stuff. Meanwhile, so imagine that. Imagine that you were raised that way. Meanwhile, Christianity is spreading 
And as it's spreading and as it leaves Jerusalem and Palestine and Judea, and as the gospel begins to go, just like Acts 1-8, Jesus told us, hey, the gospel needs to go. You, know, you, can't, you can't just save this life-transforming message to yourself. You've got to spread it. Well, it's spreading. It's spreading and it's going. We saw this even just last week. What happened? Paul and Barnabas, what did they do? They were sent out. They were sent out and they began to share the gospel. And so they've traveled. They're traveling some 500 miles and they're seeing men and women and they're seeing children coming to know Jesus Christ. And many of the people know this, that were coming to know Jesus Christ were either Gentile, Roman, or Greek-oriented people, not Jewish people. So they didn't know the Old Testament ways. They didn't know Maybe they knew some of the Ten Commandments, but they surely didn't know the 613 ceremonial laws. They didn't know them, and they surely weren't living by them. And so in Acts chapter 15, as these two groups begin to mix, there's a conflict. And the Gentile followers, in their minds, you accept Jesus Christ by faith in him, but for the Jewish person, Jewish Christian, they would say, well, no, in order to be a follower of Jesus, you sort of need to become Jewish. Like, yeah, you're a Christian by faith in God, but you also need to go through all the same hoops that we've been raised in, that we've followed all the days of our lives. And so you can imagine how this became a crucial conflict, an area of, whoa, slow down for just a second. Again, core questions, though, were at stake. Who gets to be a part of the church? Who gets to be called a follower of Jesus Christ? Is there anything beyond faith in Jesus Christ and God's grace that makes you a Christian? Is there anything beyond that? And so the story goes like this. Paul and Barnabas now, imagine it, they've traveled some 500 miles. They've circled back now to Antioch, the church that sent them out. And so then this is where we pick up in verse 1. It says, certain people came down from Judea and Antioch, and they were teaching the believers. So certain people, they, so again, so these are Jewish teachers that have come down, and this is what they're saying. Unless you are circumcised, According to the customs taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Now imagine if you were particularly a male, an adult male, and you were really considering becoming a member of the church. You might reconsider your membership, right? I mean, think about that. Imagine if you were a person in your 40s or your 50s, a male or a female, And all of a sudden, you've got this whole new set of things being imposed on you. Unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Imagine that. That was a big deal. So these teachers are coming down there, and they're saying this. Okay, if you want to be a Christian, it's not just faith in God. It's not just faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. No, there's more to it than that. You would have had some adult males saying, you know, honey, why don't you go ahead and go to new member class alone? I'm going to sit in the car. I'm just going to think more about whether I really want to become part of this church, right? They're hearing like the sharpening of the knife and the... Not pleasant. Verse 2. This really happened. Verse 2. It says this. It says this brought, and you can see why. This, thank goodness. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. That's just a very nice way of saying this. This was a big conflict. A big conflict in the church. Because Paul and Barnabas, I mean, imagine it. They have traveled, not by jet plane, but they've traveled. They've worked their tails off. And they've seen, as they've traveled over 500 miles, people coming to know Christ, most of them Gentiles, Romans. Most of them not Jewish. 
And so they're thinking, no, 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 no. We've seen God change lives. And you can probably point to the point in your life where God changed your life. And we would point to your story and go, oh, we celebrate that. Well, now these people are coming in and they're saying, no, 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 no. It's not quite finished yet. They're not quite there yet. And so from there we see this. Uh, yeah, verse, the rest of verse 2. It says, so Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem and to see the apostles and the elders about this question. This meeting, it's known as the Council at Jerusalem. And it was a big deal. And it was a big deal because in Jerusalem, you had kind of the hub, or you could think of it like this, you had kind of like the epicenter of Christianity in the first century. And so they're sent up there, and in Jerusalem, you had all sorts of men and women who were not only Christians, but you had men and women who had seen Jesus Christ. This is only about 20 years after the crucifixion. And so you've got people there that are like, we saw Jesus resurrected. We know, we know that he's alive. We know that he's the son of God. And so you've got people that are fully bought in in Jerusalem. So there they are at this council. It's a big deal. It says this then in verse 3. It says, the church then sent them on their way, and as they traveled along to Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad, so they're overjoyed. People are coming to know Christ. It says, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything that God had done through them. Verse 5, it says, Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, they stood up. Now, time out just really quick. The Pharisees, think about this group. The Pharisees, if you read the Gospels, you know this was the group that Jesus was the most hard on because they always questioned what he was doing. They always had, a, they always had an issue. But beyond that, they always wanted to add things to the Gospel. They always wanted to, as we said a few weeks ago, they wanted to clean the, the, the outside of the cup and the dish, but the inside they were full of greed and all sorts of hypocrisy. And so Jesus was always opposed to this group. But after he has been resurrected, the Pharisees look at Jesus, at least some of them, and they say, you know what? We can't argue with that anymore. I mean, he was dead. A dead man is out of the grave. And so we believe. And so now we've got these Pharisees that have become Christians, but they, they're still caught up in their Pharisaical ways, and they're saying, but yeah, but you still have to. I mean, if you're going to be a Christian, you still have to go to some, through some of the hoops that we've ascribed to all of our lives. Imagine trying to break this cycle. So then it says this. This is what they said in verse 5. It says, and they stood up and they said, the Gentiles must be circumcised, and now it's even a step further from the first time, and required to keep all the law of, and to, required to keep the law of Moses. So again, this is over 600 laws that they believed in. And, and now you must adhere to these. This was unrealistic. I mean, there's no way that you've got 40, 50, 60-year-old man or woman who's a Gentile there's no way that all of a sudden they're going to learn how to keep all of these laws, the moral laws or, or the ceremonial laws. It wasn't happening. It would be like doing this. I mean, imagine for a second if, if, if you accepted Christ in this place or your friend did, and all of a sudden before you left, I stood up from the platform and I said, hey, you put your faith in Jesus Christ, and that's really great, but we're going to pass, our hosts are going to come forward really quick, and then they passed out this little sheet, and it had this little checklist on it. 
And, and I, I said from up front, there's just a few more things that you need to do to really be in. There's just a few more things that are really important if you're really going to be a Christian. And so you look at the list and you're like, okay, wow, read the Bible every day. Okay, pray an hour a day. Uh, sign up to serve till I die. Okay. And, and, then, and then I said, you do all of that though, you will be so good with God. And that's the good news, the gospel. I mean, imagine that. You'd be like, that doesn't make any sense. But that's how it would have been for these people that were raised one way. And now they're saying, hey, this Old Testament law, you need to keep it to a T if you're truly going to be a Christian. That takes us to verse 6 then. Peter stands up and, and know this, Peter has authority in the church because, again, Peter saw Jesus. Peter saw Jesus go to the cross. Peter saw Jesus after the cross. It says the apostles and the elders, they met to consider the question, and after much discussion, you can fill in argument. Peter got up and he addressed them, brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God who knows the heart. Again, where does God want you to give your attention to? God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke, this is important, that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? Peter's saying, time out. Wait a minute. All of these laws you even haven't been very good at keeping. How on earth can we expect these people that are new believers in Christ to keep the things that you haven't kept well? And I wonder if he looked at someone and was like, hey, Joe, I just saw you take a sacrifice, and I know what kind of animal you sacrificed, so that tells me a little bit about the sin that you just committed, so I think you're struggling keeping the law. Am I right? Martha, how about you? I saw you take that over there, the pigeon, and you sacrificed, so I know what you did, right? How are you doing? Are you keeping the law? Again, Peter would have said to them, what was the law for? Well, the law was to point us to Christ. The law was to help us realize we can't keep it. The law was to help you and I know that without God, we are in trouble. And what Peter is saying is this. Why would we put this yoke on these new believers that you and I haven't even been able to keep? In their minds, it would have been like this. The Pharisees, they constantly, constantly, they wanted to spell salvation. Dio, do. It's about what you do. If you keep the law, you'll be right with God. Boy, if you get your act cleaned up, you come into this place and you had a great week, that's when you're accepted here. That's what they were like. It was all about do. And what Peter's standing up and he's saying to them is, no, this is how you spell the gospel. D-O-N-E. It is done. It's not about your righteousness. We'll see that in Galatians today. It's not about your righteousness. When we come to know Christ, does God grow us? Of course he does. But it's not to earn anything. It's out of a response to what he's already done. And so Peter's wanting to drive home this point. The gospel, it is about what he has done. It's not fear-based. And so in verse 11, we see Peter. And know this, Peter's fired up. He says this, no. He says, we believe that it is through faith. It is, sorry, it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved. Just as they are. This is why as a church, we don't say to you, hey, get your act cleaned up and then come to church. 
This is why we say things like, come as you are. Just come as you are. Because you're going to join a group of people that are being transformed by God, thank goodness. But we don't all have it figured out. Just come as you are. God will remove the obstacles. God will help you get over this and that. But when you're taking steps toward God, uh, that's the time to say, okay, I don't have to have it all clean. I don't have to be cleaned up. And Peter, he's saying this, just as they are. We need to like, love them just as they are. Verse 12, it says, The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders that God had done among the Gentiles through them. In verse 13, it says, When they had finished, James spoke up. So now it's like another person's coming in to the story. Now let me just take a quick time out here for a second. James is on the scene. Raise your hand if you have a brother. Go ahead, raise your hands. Okay, I have a brother too. Now, what would it take for you to be convinced that your brother is God? My brother would say, a whole lot more than I've seen, Jeff. A whole lot more than I've seen, right? Think about this. James believed that Jesus was God. That's a huge defense of the faith. You know why, though? James believed that he was God because he saw his brother. He saw Jesus after Jesus went to the cross. He saw him resurrected, and he couldn't deny it. So whose voice is really important, I think, as we read the Gospels? James, of course. So James, he speaks up, and he says this. He says, verse 19, he says, It is my judgment, therefore, kind of concluding the matter, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. We shouldn't make it difficult. This is how it applies to us. This is why as a church, when we come here on Sunday mornings, we don't want it to be difficult for you to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want our parking lot, right down to practical things like that. We want it to be smooth, in and out. We don't want it to be like a treasure hunt when you go and check your kids in. Like, what do I do next? We don't want it to be hard. We don't want you to come into this place and to hear a message that's full of all sorts of words that you've never heard before. We want the gospel to be understood from the parking lot to this room and beyond. Because just like you, I have friends coming to this place and I want them to know beyond a shadow of a doubt with nothing getting in the way. Again, our main point, don't make it difficult. I want them to know the God that loves them. And so we can't make it difficult. People will say to us, wow, I came to Brookside and how do you have this army of smiling people that wear blue shirts week in and week out and and how do you convince people that it's worth not just coming to church for one hour, but you can even get them, a lot of them convinced that if they can come and stay for two hours and serve one hour, it's even better. And the answer to that question is very simple. It's because people believe the core. They believe our mission, helping people find and follow Jesus Christ. And they want to say, I don't want to do anything that makes that complicated. But if I can be a part if I can play my role in helping make that easy for people, count me in. And so that's how that happens. Know this, there are people who walk in our church every single week. You might be here this morning and this is you. They don't know the path to Jesus Christ. On the spiritual front, it is a foggy road. And they need it to be simple and clear. And Peter's driving home, Paul, Barnabas, they're driving home that point. Verse 20 says this, instead we should write to them telling them to abstain from, sexual, uh, to abstain from food 
polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from meat strangled by animals, and from blood. In other words, don't give them 613 laws. Just tell them very simply to try not to offend the Jews by what they eat, and be sexually pure. And then the letter ends this way, verse 29, it says, you will do well to avoid these things. And that says, farewell. You know, it's like, farewell, we've said our piece. Verse 30, you see the response then. It says, so the men were sent off and they went down to Antioch. After the council at Jerusalem, they go down to Antioch where they gathered the church together and they delivered this letter and the people read it and they were glad for its encouraging message, especially, I think, the adult males in the crowd, right? Now think about this. I was talking to this gal just this, this last week and she was describing how she came from a spiritual background that was very complicated, very difficult, very legalistic. And I asked her, actually, I said, can you type up what you just said to me? I think this is helpful. She said this. She said, legalism gave me the false illusion that my salvation had something to do with me, with my actions. She says, I have to do the right thing to be loved by God. You're never quite sure of your salvation in that world. You're never quite sure. Does God love you? Is God mad at me? Should I confess again? Do I need to repent one more time? My obedience to God was based on a fear of God, not a love for God. And then she said this, powerful. It slaps in the face of Christ who gave us so much. It's as if to say that God's gift of his son wasn't good enough to save me. Legalism made me my savior and not Christ. I remember as a young Christian in college, I was really struggling letting go of some of the guilt that I still had from some of the immoral choices that I made before I came to know Christ in college. And I remember going to this mentor of mine who had really led me to the Lord, and, and he said something to me that day. He just really flipped the switch for me. He said, he, says, when you, he said, when you don't let go of what God has forgiven of you, it shows you, it shows that you want to trust in your own righteousness, Jeff. And then he said this, it's like saying the cross wasn't good enough for that part of my life. It's like saying, I got to get back on the dude train instead of being on the train that says, God, what you've done for me is good enough. And so I can move on. I, it's not about my righteousness. It's about what you've done for me. Galatians chapter 2, the apostle Paul summarized it so well. He said this. He said, for through the... Uh, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. He said, I have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer that I live, but Christ who lives in me. The life that I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then this is key. He says, for I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. So if if righteousness could be obtained by what you do, Christ didn't need to die. But it can't be obtained that way. The law points us to our need for God. And so this morning, I just hope that you'll hear with such clarity, as a church, we cannot make the gospel difficult. And we have to play our A game because each and every week, we want it to be crystal clear. No roadblocks for people. Because why? Because God is so good. And we want people to know him so well. And then I want to leave you with this question. Is there anything in your life that you would say, you know what, I'm taking stock in this. And I'm feeling like if I'll just do well in this area, God will actually care more about me. Is there anything like that? 
oh, just read your Bible today and then we'll be great. See how you do tomorrow. Is there anything like that where you're like, you feel like God is a stat-keeping God? I just want to encourage you this morning, walk away from that. Rest in the gospel. Apart from our own righteousness, he loved you and he loved me. And so we find rest and grace and joy in knowing Christ because of what he has done. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we just, first we repent for the times, Lord, when we get this wrong and when we put our confidence in the things that we could do. And we just say to you this morning, Lord, that it's not about what we could do, but it's about what you have done. And Father, I pray this morning for the person who's here and they would maybe say, I've never trusted in Jesus Christ. Would you just say to him this morning, I put aside all the things that I could do and I put my faith in you and in you alone. It's not what I can do, it's what you have done. Lord, we love you. Lord, we worship you now. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Amen.